Welcome back, everyone, to the Spoonful of Sugar podcast, which is brought to you in partnership with Farmerica. I'm John O'Connor from McKnight's, and I'll be co-hosting with TJ Griffin, RPH, who is the Senior Vice President of Long-Term Care Operations and Chief Pharmacy Officer for Farmerica. In each episode, we try to address important matters facing the industry today. But we also like to add a spoonful of sugar, which, as we all have heard, can help the medicine go down. Joining us today is one of the most respected and recognized leaders in our sector, Robert G. Kramer. TJ, can you tell us a bit about our special guest? Absolutely, John. As you noted, Bob is is broadly recognized as one of Senior Living's most influential and high-profile thought leaders and connectors. With over 35 years of industry experience, he has earned the reputation of agent provocateur in the senior housing and care industry and aging services field. He's been described as an ice cutter and scout in identifying industries and trends that will disrupt the future of senior housing, aging services, and aging more broadly. And we, we just couldn't be more glad to have him aboard. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd say Bob's off to a good start. <laughs> well, Bob, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you both. Thanks for bringing me on to the uh, program. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, Bob, before we get started, can you talk for a moment about how a Navy admiral, I believe it was an admiral, was instrumental in redirecting your career into the seniors housing and care field? Absolutely, John. Uh, Well, I was a 32-year-old freshman legislator in the Maryland legislature, representing the state capital of Annapolis, the home of the U.S. Naval Academy. And I had an admiral walk into my office in uniform, and I did what any freshman legislator in such a situation would do. I stood up and I said, yes, sir. And he said, son, my buddies and me want to build ourselves a retirement community, and we need your help. And I, of course, said, yes, sir. And that turned out to be Ginger Cove, a CCRC here in Annapolis. When it opened, it was home. Uh, 45% of the residents were Navy flag officers. And it was uh, dress for dinner was dress whites, but that meant the men. And uh, it was a fun experience. I spoke at their groundbreaking. I learned a lot about, uh, about aging services and specifically about senior living through that experience. Sort of cut my teeth on it, you could say. Very good. Well, talk about a life-changing event, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into the main event here. By any reasonable standard, the past few years have been challenging for most operators. COVID-19 opened up a Pandora's box of caregiving and staffing challenges. More recently, rising inflation has been quickly driving up costs. Bob, I'm wondering if you've ever even seen a operating environment that's this challenging across the board. So uh, how would you uh, describe the relative health of the skilled care, assisted living, and independent living sectors these days? Well, I think the key thing I would say is that you just have, I mean, and I think it's one of our greatest internal threats, and that's just sheer exhaustion. I mean, basically what started out as a crisis but seemed like a sprint became a marathon and a marathon where it seems as though as a long distance runner myself, they kept moving back the distance and uh, and you didn't know when it was going to be over. And I think we cannot overestimate just the physical, emotional and mental exhaustion of people really from the frontline caregiver CNA right up through the executive suite. It was just simple exhaustion. And with that also was financial exhaustion, particularly on the private pay side, where the advocacy efforts of the skilled nursing sector 
were very successful in terms of government support dollars during COVID. There was much less of that for the private pay-assisted living memory care. So that exhaustion, I think, and what that meant was uh, just burnout, PTSD. And I think the toll that took, and that's as significant as any of the individual challenges. And I think that's why you've seen now as we haven't really left COVID, but we've learned to adjust to it. (laughs) And now we're facing what seems to be another huge challenge, namely staffing. And you have operators who literally can't operate different wings of buildings and literally are not taking referrals because they can't get the staff. So I think it's been unprecedented. You mentioned, I mean, inflation's not unusual. We've, we've dealt with that before, but you're coming off a period of, as I said, exhaustion, an unbelievable stress, and now trying to address both trying to get up occupancies. They're coming up, but they're coming up slowly. They're going in the right direction. Um, and this, this uncertainty about the economy, the inflation, and obviously, depending upon which sector, you know, if you're private pay, okay, are, are your residents really, are you going to be able to do high single digit at least rate increases? And skilled, obviously, you don't have that luxury <laughs> of just passing it through in terms of rate increases. So, you know. Obviously, the take back from CMS being phased in was a huge win for the skilled sector. But I would say exhaustion and overall just fatigue, and it doesn't help when you're desperately trying to protect yourself and your family and your residents and staff, seeing people die, and then on top of that being portrayed often in the mainstream media as the enemy, as complicit in the deaths of so many people. And that is, that's hard. It's hard for anyone. Well, Bob, you you describe, and you can hear it in your voice now, the passion, you describe COVID-19 as a transformational moment. Can you add some context to that? What What do you mean by transformational moment and how will we transform this sector? Well, it's, it's a great question, TJ. And I, I think several things. Um, one is that we were forced as a sector to do things we hadn't had to do before because we had no choice. And some of that was incredibly painful. But I also think we learned some really critical lessons that for the industry to grow and become strong again, and particular on the private pay side for addressing the new customer that's going to be our customer going forward in the future. These were critical lessons learned, if you want. One was we were dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century world of digital communication. I mean, historically, healthcare has lagged behind other major areas like retail and so forth in terms of its use of technology. And senior living was behind that. And even within senior living, skilled nursing was often behind private pay just because of they just didn't have dollars for innovation. So I think whether it's communication with residents, with staff, with family members, we were forced into this digital world. It wasn't safe and we couldn't deal with healthcare issues by shipping our residents out to the ER or to the doctor's office. The doctor's office was closed and the hospitals didn't want them (laughs) because their ICUs beds were overflowing. So we had to learn to bring care in rather than export our residents out for care. 
Similarly with engagement, you know, the multi-purpose activity room was closed and the van with our name on it couldn't go anywhere. And so we had to think totally differently about how we engaged our residents and kept them active. And we couldn't rely on the things we'd relied on before. And then sales and marketing, they had to learn a whole new way of relating to customers and prospective customers. There were no, although the key is to get them actually here for a tour. That was not an option. So I think in all of those areas, and I would say another issue to me that's going to be, I think, transformative, mental and behavioral health issues really emerged from the shadows because of COVID, but they're not going to recede again. And I think for, for staff and for residents, learning to address mental health and behavioral health issues uh, is going to be a, not only a real issue, but often I, I do think for some providers, it'll be a real opportunity. They'll target specific services uh, in this area. And I also think there's going to be, we lost consumer trust to a great extent during COVID. Not trust in the, gee, I don't want to be in that setting because of what it represents. I mean more, is mom is my mom safe if I put her in your building? And I think you regain trust with transparency. And I think there's going to be an expectation of a level of transparency by providers that we didn't have to think about before. Not only with the obvious, case rates, vaccination rates among staff and, and, and residents, but also with things on the private pay side like pricing. And even now, I was just, in the last couple of weeks, I've been both in the upper Midwest and I've been in New England speaking to operators in these locations and touring buildings. And they're telling me they're getting questions they've never gotten before from prospective residents and their families. For instance, what are your staffing levels on nights and weekends? Gee, what is your base pay? Do you pay a living wage? Those were not questions most operators ever got. Now they're getting them because many prospective residents and their families see how you treat your staff as a proxy for how you'll treat them. So again, I think these are all things, obviously infection control and prevention. The bar has been raised, whether or not we have new strains of COVID. We have the flu every season. And now people are going to be asking, well, if there's a flu outbreak, how are you going to handle mom's uh, concerns that she not become socially isolated and, and her health deteriorate? And lastly, I'd say COVID has, in a sense, accelerated the shift from what I would say has been the previous generation customer, particularly for senior living, and the next generation customer. And we can expound them on that more later, but I think uh, that just ticks off a, a few areas where I think it, this has really been, it's a great opportunity. I think private pay senior living, quite frankly, has an opportunity to recast itself and its product to attract this new customer, who among other things has a very different take on longevity. This is why you're on the show, Bob. <laughs> I mean, that was that was uh, just an excellent overview of, I think, where we are in the future. And we do have to recast the light of what we have been through. And that's all the things you just said, digital, 
transparency, safety, infection control. We could have a pretty hefty flu season this year. We haven't had a flu season for two years. And now everyone's got their masks off again. And we're not as diligent about washing our hands again. And, you know, I think we'll see a spike in flu. But, uh, you know, I think it's no secret that quality and infection control are more important than ever. Do you think the sector is doing an adequate job of promoting perhaps its greatest strength, which is enhancing socialization and serving as an antidote to loneliness that often accompanies aging? No, I I don't think we are. Um, Looking at it on the private pay side, for private pay senior living, I think we have taken the easy way, which has been following the tide of rising acuity and people moving in later, we have kind of reverted in many instances to a value proposition in our sales, which is basically we have the care you need when you absolutely can't live any longer without it. And that's not a compelling value proposition. That is what I would call more the, it's, it's an avoidance model where people feel pushed out of a setting where they have no choice or their children feel they have no choice but to put mom into one of our buildings. And instead, as you alluded to, TJ, I think there's enormous opportunity. For instance, people often would comment, oh, congregate settings, meaning group settings for older adults, that's that's not healthy for them. That's bad. And I counter that and say, okay, let's talk about the experience of the rest of society. Let's talk about the experience of college students or 20-somethings or 30-somethings or or, or folks at all ages, the restrictions on our movement and on getting together with other people, we didn't like them. And we were incredibly frustrated. And so if we say, well, congregate settings for seniors are bad, then we're saying bars are bad, restaurants are bad, multifamily apartment buildings are bad, college dorms are bad. No, we're wired for human and social connection. And when it's taken away from us, we not only miss it, but actually our health deteriorates. But we have to do a better job of this. It's not just enabling people to play bingo. It's finding out what gives them joy, what gives them a sense of purpose or meaning each day. And in a sense, as one One of our Nick Talk speakers, Lisa Marsh-Rarson, the previous president of the AARP Foundation, said, our activities directors need to be purpose matchmakers. They need to be finding those things that most matter to Mrs. Jones and the reason she wants to keep living and the reason she wants to get up that day. And Bill Thomas, one of my Nexus Insights fellows, calls it they need to be difference makers or meaning makers, meaning they help that, that older adult either further or rediscover a sense of what gives them purpose. And that's all, too, about feeling connected and the opposite of social isolation and loneliness. So this should be a kick in the pants to all of us to realize that, you know, one of our opportunities is to have a pull model, not a push model. Push model, you're pushed out of the setting you've been in against your will often. Pull model, it's, you're, you, it's an aspirational setting. 
you want the opportunity to have these relationships, to engage in these activities. And you, you feel like this is a place that puts life in your years, not just a place that's going to add more years to your life. That's, that's a great point, Bob. I couldn't agree more. It seemed like for a long time, um, seniors housing was, was sort of separate from healthcare. And it seems like there's, there's this kind of melding going on where healthcare is becoming increasingly a part of the experience that the seniors have as they move in, especially into skilled care and, and even in, in many instances in, in assisted living or what's now called senior living. Do you think that rising acuity levels and the focus on serving rising acuity levels is A, is it necessary? And B, is it a good thing? Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the real questions, for instance, will be, as now we see because of pent-up demand, folks moving into, let's say, assisted living uh, settings, what will be their length of stay? Uh, we know for the industry, um, you know, back a number of years ago, it was not uncommon to have people 30 months or 36 months, and then it was down to 24 months. Now many are dealing with 18 months lengths of stay. Well, that puts enormous pressure on your marketing team because you're turning over half of your residents every year and so or more. And again, that's a function of if you're getting people kind of when either their caregivers, their family caregivers, or they realize I got to make this move. I just I can't continue here. And we need to be we want to be attracting them sooner. And, and a lot of that has to do then, the attraction then is lifestyle, not care. The care is there and the care needs to be top quality. But it's about, again, what are the things you do for me that enable me to feel better about myself and my day? And people don't want to be defined just by their chronic conditions. So, you know, I do think that health as opposed to even health care and wellness and well-being are very are going to be critical for our sector going forward. I think one of the things that's going to attract people is a sense that this setting will promote my wellness. And that's in a sense of I think we're moving in our whole health system. It's slow, but we're moving from a sick care model, which is curative, it's reactive after the after you get sick, and it's passive in terms of the consumer. The consumer has things done to him or her. We're moving to a well care model that's preventative. The goal, in other words, now is rather than something happens to you, sick care model, we send you to the doctor, the expert, and the hospital to get fixed. Now it's, in essence, we want to prevent, do as much as we can to prevent you from interacting with the acute care health system and ending up in the ER. And that means we want to look for what are contraindications in terms of you're taking 16 meds. Do you need to be on 16? Are some really interacting in a bad way and actually causing your health to decline? And it's also this new well care model is predictive. And that means you need data. You can't do predictive. You can't help anticipate a bad event and head it off unless you've got good data that puts out warning signals <laughs> to you. And it's participatory on the part of the customer or the resident. So I like to say 
because of COVID, John, we've moved from a moat around our buildings to a moat around the hospital. What do I mean? A moat around our building because private pay proudly, particularly inside the Beltway on Capitol Hill, said no health care happens in our buildings. We ship people out for health care, meaning you don't need feds to regulate us because no health care is happening in our buildings. And all of a sudden, overnight in April 2020, we had to do a 180 degree shift. And suddenly our message was, Oh, no, we have very frail, vulnerable elders in our buildings that we care for. And you know what? In this public health crisis emergency, we are the front lines of defense for the entire healthcare system because, A, our residents are the most vulnerable to this particular uh, virus. And secondly, your ERs and especially your ICUs will be overwhelmed if you don't help us provide the healthcare and services they need where they live. So the moat around our buildings fell down. We had to start doing, delivering health care to where people lived and into their homes, in this case, into our communities. In a moat around our buildings, in the sick care model of health care, senior living has no function and no partnership. Our only role is to keep providing that wonderful revolving door of people that keep going to the ER, keep getting admitted, maybe for observational stays, and keep having a series of very expensive tests run each single time they show up. And by the way, keep getting discharged a little weaker and less healthy than they were when they went in. And now we're trying to sort of break that cycle. And when we break that cycle, what it means is we're now key participants in the healthcare system. Because if the goal is to keep people from the ER and to have less frequent hospitalizations and very infrequent rehospitalizations, then we become key partners. Not only partners for the healthcare providers, the physicians, but we become key partners for the payers. Because if you have like uh, the explosive growth of uh, Medicare Advantage plans, They're holding the dollar risks for these individuals. Well, they are incentivized for those people to not end up constantly going to the hospital. And where are the largest collections of these frail elders? In our communities. We've suddenly become valuable partners rather than just we just feed people in to this old sick care model. So enormous opportunity there. Bob, this this is TJ. We are absolutely seeing the same thing. You know, we're seeing our senior living partners come to us and want to utilize our consultant pharmacists more. Come in and help us develop wellness programs, as you said, around health and mental well-being, around falls risk programs within. They don't have to be sniff level falls programs, but there are still lots of things mm-hmm. you can do in the senior living uh, sector. You know, working on deprescribing initiatives, like you said, getting from 16 to 10 making sure that clinically you have a very sound, well building, as you said, and you can market to that. You can market that to families that say, yeah, we have a, we have consultant pharmacists in here all the time, making sure mom's meds are right and working with her physician. And I think it's been very effective, but how do we get workers to cross that moat? How do we get the nights of long-term care nurses back across that moat, keeping workers 
has been such a challenge. And how do we improve our ability to find and keep those talented knights of the round table crossing the moat? How do we do it? Well, I, I think um, if, again, I don't think the staffing crisis is a cyclical phenomenon. Here we are again. Uh, it's going to be solved as soon as the labor market loosens up, which has always been the approach before. That maybe okay, it's a quarter more an hour, but you know, then things will loosen up again. This is fundamentally different. This labor crisis, and I, I think those that think it's short term are naive and in for a rude wake up call. I think one of the things we've learned during COVID, I would say, I'll put it this way: what happens, and what is the world of our employees outside of their shifts? suddenly matters and it matters a lot during COVID, it mattered a lot because what were they getting exposed to and were they at risk of bringing COVID into our buildings so we cared about the public transportation they took to work we cared about even where they shopped and we cared about who else was in their home setting such that were they in a sense bringing into our building and exposing our residents to well to me we have to reset how we think about, and now I'm going to talk specifically about hourly employees. That's frontline employees, that's maintenance, that's dining room servers, and so forth. But we have to reset that relationship. And I would put it this way, TJ, we have to move from a transactional view of our employees to a relational view. And what I mean by that is, if it's transactional, I really only care about you, again, from the time you clock in to the time you clock out. And yes, I may have to up pay a quarter an hour. These days, it would be a dollar an hour. I was just with a provider, and they've already done, during COVID, one $3 an hour across the board increase for all their hourly they're now considering, the board was considering doing a second, $3 an hour in order to be competitive with other employers in their market. But it's more than about wages. And what do I mean by that? I think one of the challenges we have is that many managers of hourly employees do not understand, let alone have empathy for the world of their hourly employees, many of whom are either in poverty or trying to stay out of poverty. And so their world is eligibility for government assistance programs. Their world is comes crashing down when schools are closed, not just because their kids aren't learning, but the free lunches that are balanced and nutritious that their kids are eligible, they don't get. And oftentimes also free breakfast. And that world is also a world where childcare is a critical issue, transportation, housing, critical issues. So when we train our managers in communication skills, listening skills, and especially what to look for 30, 60, and 90 days if an employee is not liking the job and they, we might lose them. What we don't train them in is truly understanding the world of their hourly employees. You know, a quarter of them we know are immigrants. Many are single moms. And they're dealing with issues of domestic abuse or the, the former boyfriend or spouse. For instance, 
Do we have an affiliation with a local domestic abuse center where our employees can go and get free services, confidential, that aren't a file then sent back to HR? Are our HR teams skilled in all types of government assistance programs? That's the reality of our hourly employees. If they only know about our benefit system, that's not really the big major help to many of our frontline employees. So it's a whole different way of thinking. Ruth Weirich wrote a book called Workforce Stability. And in there, she makes that point of this huge just gap between managers and hourly employees. And I think that really applies to our field. And it means that we have to show and our managers and top level leadership that we understand, empathize with, and want to be not the solution, but part of the solution to the challenges these employees face. I'll give you one quick example. In the Washington, D.C. area, there's an organization, Goodwin Living, and a particular longtime employee was a little down one day, and the resident that had known, I think this employee was named John, asked John why he was so discouraged, and because he was always upbeat and smiling. He said, well, I've been here in this country for X number of years. I've been trying to get a citizenship. They keep raising the fees, and the, the exam is so difficult, I don't know how in the world I could ever study for it and pass it. Well, bottom line, she took this issue to the staff leadership. They did a survey. They found out that in their two communities, they had 59 immigrants seeking citizenship. Costs $10,000 in fees. The residents raised all of that money for all 59. The residents volunteered and set up a tutoring program in the citizenship exam. And now, progressively, one after another of these staff are getting citizenship. Washington Post wrote that up in a front page story. What do you think happened to applications to work at Goodwin Living? They went through the roof. Didn't cost the organization a lot of money, but it showed that that community and that company cared about, empathized with the situation of their employees outside of work and wanted to come alongside of them. That's what I'm talking about, reframing it from a transactional to a relational relationship. And I don't know if you saw the article this week, Axios put out an excellent article about employees and happier and more engaged workers leads to 23% higher profits and better performance. Yeah. And it also leads to much more satisfied residents in a senior living community. Exactly. We know that to the extent that my earlier comment, families are right to ask questions about how we treat our staff. Because if the staff feels they're treated as family, they're liable to treat the residents as family. Another way of putting what you just said, TJ. Yeah. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. Special thanks to Farmerica, whose generous support made this presentation possible. To learn more about ways Farmerica can deliver world-class pharmacy services to your organization, we invite you to visit them online at www.farmerica.com. Along with TJ Griffin, this is John O'Connor wishing you health and happiness. See you next time.